Girl, I cannot stop thinking about that taser in my back. Uh, that taser, we're going to get to it in this episode. I can't stop. I, I feel it. I feel it in my back right now. Look, I said in the last episode, I, I called Mike in to watch it. The look on his face, the poor thing. I felt bad for it, but then he I just know. like slowly sat down and just watched the rest of the app. Like, what the, what? What is this? <laughs> Again, he was like, girl, that is a weird job. Yeah. <laughs> it is a weird job. <laughs> Before we get to the episode, just a reminder, if you want more Jillian and me, get in the Patreon. We are in the middle of that bonkers series, Tiger King, that you guys all really wanted us to do. We're doing it. Girl, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. Mental health be damned. We're doing it. <laughs> I know. The Patreon is where we do our episode-by-episode episode coverage of the series you want us to cover. So it's like Serial, The Staircase, Making a Murderer. The Jinx. The Jinx. Natalie Holloway. OJ. Lorena. The Disappearance of Natalie McCann. Lacey Peterson. Aaron Hernandez. Menendez Murders. You guys, it's like literally 140 full bonus episodes. RIP the phone storage. Just go download and binge. I feel like it's getting to the point now where we're trying to compete. Like who can say the quote bigger ones first or like who can say the most first. (laughs) But the Tiger King, we're doing it. You guys wanted it. It's there. You can also find ad free versions of these episodes. Get into our after party if you want to hear like crazy stories from our lives. Yeah. If you're bored in quarantine, go to the Pates. You guys, you won't be sorry. And if you're confused and you're like, wait, I thought they were doing McMillions. We're doing McMillions right after Tiger King. <laughs> also, if you're confused and it's like 2127 in the year of our Lord and you're like, quarantine, what are they talking about? Uh, you guys, back in Jillian and my lifetime in the year 2020, we all had to stay home for a long time and we're going <laughs> batshit stir crazy. <laughs> You know, I'm kind of okay with it. I kind of like it. I know. I hate the people that are okay with it. I'm not okay with it, girl. I'm not okay with it in different ways than you're not okay with it. We'll save it for a quarantine check in. All right, girl, what are we talking about today? We're talking about CBS's The Case of John Bonet. This is episode two. So we already did episode one. I feel like we never say this. If you guys haven't listened to episode one, go do that first, girl. What are you doing? Just go back one. Just listen, because we might be referencing some bits that you're not going to get. Also, again, why are you just jumping into episode two? I know. <laughs> listen, you you do you. We're not going to tell you how to live your goddamn lives. Do you, but it would be better if you just listen to both of them. <laughs> Let me address very directly, I did not kill my daughter, John Bonet. God knows who you are, and we will find you. The list of suspects narrows. There's a, there's a ransom note here. It's a ransom note? What? There's a famous note? I don't know. Sorry, hurry, hurry. Patty, Patty, Patty. So you tried to solve a homicide, but a homicide doesn't exist. I did not kill Jean Benet. I love that child. We do not have sufficient evidence. This little girl's homicide to this date has been unresolved. In my opinion, I think we can change that right now. We have five different motives in this one crime. It makes no sense. The most important thing is to go where the evidence takes us. Do not ever, ever contact me again. Unbelievable. We want to get the truth out so that John Bonet can rest in peace. 
girl, get us started. How does this one start? All right, so we get a whole big previously on, which is basically our first episode of this. Right. <laughs> so we get into, was the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey intentional or was it just made to look intentional? Right. And so now we're going to break down all of the theories right. that people have about this murder. And we are going to start with the intruder theory. So the intruder theory basically is that somebody was able to surveil the family and find a time when they weren't in the house and get into the house. And then when everybody else went to sleep, they write a ransom letter. And then they took John Bonet, possibly used a stun gun to subdue her, and then took her down to the basement, tied her up, killed her, but still left a ransom note. Maybe this is controversial. I can't imagine that it is. I don't think this is what happened, you guys. This is so not what happened. <laughs> you know, they keep saying over and over again, these experts, this like team of experts that like everything about this just goes against the numbers and statistics of, of like all the crime numbers we know. Like you don't leave a ransom letter that's five pages long. Right. You don't leave a ransom note even. I'll, I'll do you one better like, right. for the sake of argument. <laughs> you, no one leaves a ransom note when I hate to the body is in the house. Right. Like, none of it makes any sense. And then you put, you do a practice round and you put it neatly back where you know it belongs. Right, right. Come on. So we meet Lou Smith. You guys, I forgot the garbage bell today, but what you're hearing right now is um, an app version of it because I hate this fucking guy so much. Yeah, so Lou is a detective from Colorado. He's the one who came up with the intruder theory. Lou Smith, he was a Colorado Springs homicide investigator. And he was hired by? By Alex Hunter, the district attorney at the time. He spent about a week looking at the crime scene photos and such, and came up with the theory of the, of the intruder. He goes on TV, and it's like, you got to remember when this was. This was the 90s. Like, things that were said on TV by homicide detectives were taken as fact. And he's telling the world that, like, the family definitely wasn't involved. The person who took JonBenet Ramsey sexually assaulted her, used a stun gun on her, and then she died a horrible, painful death. And I'll tell you, for all the years I wasn't making a true crime podcast, I thought that's what happened because I heard it on TV. I have some questions about this. Yes. First of all, he is actually using the Ramsey's home yeah. to show how it was an intruder. And to me, that feels kind of gross. So we're, we're going through this video. It's hard to describe if you haven't seen it, but that basement window where the, the suitcase was left in front of, yes. that was broken. So Lou Smith is on the outside of this, right? He's, he's outside the house and he's going through the window. You know, it's been said that only a midget can get down into this grate. Well, I'm no midget and I'll show you how easily it can be done. It really wasn't that difficult coming in that window. And often, a burglar or an intruder, if they find a safe way in, they also figure it'll be a safe way out. It's very 1998 or whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> like very 1998, a current affair. Right. Oh, that scared me so much. I hate, I've, I know I've said that, but like that is such a, that, a noise that makes me think like, oh my God, oh my God. I know. Who's, I under, know. The, who's under the couch? I know. So, so Lou Smith is going through this window and are like the experts for, uh, from this documentary are just like, Girl, got news for you. That's not possible because there was a spider web or a cobweb. Right. And the whole point of the cobweb, and they talk about it for 15 hours, is that you can see the cobweb on the crime scene video that was taken the day of the murder. So why don't we look at the crime scene video? 
the um, cobwebs in that corner. There you go. Oh, wow. OK, stop. Here, you can see that all this dust and debris is already caught in it. It's weathered. It's got materials in it. It's very clear that this is not a brand new web. That would not have survived someone going through that window. Our experts tell us over and over and over again, there's no way an adult human of any size could get in through that window without disturbing that cobweb. And the cobweb is not disturbed on the crime scene video that was taken the day of the murder. And Laura does it. Like, Laura does it herself. Right. Remember how they completely rebuilt the Ramsey house on some sound, like CBS soundstage? You guys were there. We're there with Laura and Jim, and they are going to, just for shits and giggles, they're going to walk us through, like, how impossible it would have been to break in through this window and leave no evidence of it. And I love how, like, Jim's not doing it. No. Menti's not doing it. <laughs> Laura's doing it. And Laura's like, yeah. of course I'm doing it. Well, because Laura went to the let the women do the work version of Scotland Yard. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, please. Again, a student of that, of just the general let the women do the work, like, university. Like, <laughs> I'm just under that umbrella. Let the women do the work university. How do I get accepted? Laura, you up there? Yep. I'm here, Jim. How tight of a space is that there? Well, coming into it, I mean, it feels pretty small. To actually come through here, your body does have to come to this side because I don't have movement here. I mean, I can hold on to here, but I'm going to have to drop my body through. You hear Laura, like, jump through the window, and she's like, <laughs> and she looks right up, not a hair out of place, eyeliner perfect, and she's like, you guys get that? Yeah. You boys get that? Cut, print, let's go. But what she is trying to say is that she, you really have to, like, contort yourself to get into that window. So not only could you, like, not not disturb the cobweb, but all the leaves and the dirt, there'd be, like, a footprint there would be something totally. it's not an easy thing to do and then when she gets herself back out it's the same thing where like getting herself out that window brings in debris and leaves that she's you know just by the momentum of her exiting that way and jim is like you've completely wiped out that whole corner of spiderweb right. i mean it's just completely gone now and look at the disturbance that you've made this would have been very obvious to the crime scene investigators but they did find the web here and they didn't find that disturbance. Right, so it makes no sense. I feel like you and me and everyone listening to this is like, yeah, we get it. Like, if there was an intruder, they did not come in through this window. Exactly. Um, girl, can we talk about the taser, the stun gun thing? Like, we're here. I will remember this for the rest of my life. Sergeant Jay Wilson has entered the game, okay? <laughs> so here's the thing. This is, uh, you know, horrible, you guys. But Spitz is like, there are two marks, two very, very distinct marks on JonBenet's lower back. Yeah. And Spitzy's like, maybe it was a stun gun. And I'm like, maybe you were fed this by somebody? Because it makes no sense. But we'll dive into it. So... Sergeant Jay Wilson enters the game because like Detective Lou is like, you know, look, I think we the only way we can really figure this out is if we have a human volunteer right. to taste. And Detective Lou, if you remember, he's the one from episode one who I was like, he does not like being on camera. He's like the, one of the local cops who's been with this case the whole time. And so he literally was like, look, we got to address, like, was this a stun gun? Because the whole idea was whoever this intruder was used the stun gun to, quote, subdue her. And so we have to investigate if that's what would actually happen. And we see this guy, Sergeant Jay Wilson, literally, like, walks up a set of stairs. This is a sergeant with my department who's volunteered to be tased today. Um, we've all been tased previously during our law enforcement training. We appreciate you being a test subject for us and 
We're going to take this very seriously. We have medical personnel standing by in case there's any problem. The lower third is this man's agreed to be tased for the experiment. And I stood up and screamed. It's insane because I learned a lot of things in, in, yeah. in the next couple minutes. Uh, right. One <laughs> is that Detective Lou is like, don't worry, Sergeant Jay is fine. We've both been tasered before. Am I right, Jay? Uh, during training. And I'm like, wait. I've heard about cops getting pepper sprayed. Like, if you carry pepper spray, you have to actually... I'm kind of for this policy because I feel like, you know, tasers and pepper spray are, like, disproportionately used against people of color. Uh So you need to know what it feels like and, like, what it actually you go through to be tased. I agree. So I'm totally fine with that policy, but I feel like this guy, this poor Sergeant Jay, he's already been through this, and now he's volunteering to do it again for this... CBS special? Right. So let's just get into it, shall we? So they're in they're in the workroom, yeah. as they call it on Project Runway. Yeah. And so we're going to call it, again, listen to the first step, you guys. We're totally. in the workroom. And he's laying on the table and he has a shirt on. And I'm not just saying that for you. I'm saying that because that's important to know. <laughs> yeah. So they want it to be on the the exact same spot that, that these marks were on Jean Bonnet, right? Yeah. So he is not facing... Oh, the God. person who's tasing him. AJ, you get up on the pad here and face the other direction. When you are ready, you can say ready, but look that way. He's lying down, getting ready to be tased, you guys. It is so, I mean, I can feel it, Jillian. I can feel it in my back right now. I know, it's like they're, I'm being tased and there are roaches all over me. It's like a whole, it's like all of it. <laughs> Oh, oh god so detective lou is like like it's basically our version of like five six seven eight tase like he's trying to give him a little bit of warning but like you can't really prepare for that in any way no you guys they tase him so in the law enforcement setting we usually are indicating taser taser sergeant J leaves he jumps <laughs> off the table that he was laying on completely laying on I mean, when they put the taser in his back, you can see him doing that, like, I'm being electrocuted thing where, like, you have no control over your body. He makes the noise. Uh, he makes the noise. <laughs> I know. It's, it's terrifying. Uh, uh, he jumps off the table. And then you also think, like, what you were saying, like, all these people who have just been tased incessantly yes. by these piece of yes. shit cops in their lives. Like, oh, I my know. God. So he jumps off the table, and Jim and Laura are like, girl, what are you feeling right now? How did that make you feel? Uh, adrenaline rush. It's hard to stand still right Did now. you feel subdued at all? No, I just wanted to get away from it. To Laura, this is news. She's like, well, wait a second. The acting theory is that they used this on her to subdue her. Like, do you feel subdued? And he's like, no. And then Laura Richards says... <laughs> I mean, do we want to try a second round? Well, I, I think mean, that's... Depends on how Jay's feeling, but we've obviously... That particular one we did over your clothing. Laura, girl, <laughs> the the audacity of this bitch, and I say it in the best way at this point, she is trying to get that good footage. I did not see this coming a mile. She doesn't just want to do it again, sweetheart. She wants to do it again with his shirt off because they think that maybe, maybe it would subdue him if it was close, if it was like more contact. Right. And, and Laura's like, girl, can we do a take two? Yeah. Can we do another one? Just another round, a little spot <laughs> and, and Jay's like, um, and just looks around with all the lights and camera and spits and Lee. And he's like, he kind of is just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Then he lies back down. The man yeah. lies back down and he like faces away from the taser. He's looking at me right in the face. Five, six, seven, eight, taser. Taser, taser. Ow. Oh, 
Again, he jumps, if even possible, higher and farther off that table. It felt like barbaric to watch. It felt like insane to watch. Well, he's like, he's trying to be a tough guy, but like now that he's been tased twice in five minutes, he's like, he can barely contain himself. So how does it feel? This soon afterwards, I just feel everything. I mean, I still, my heart's still slowing down. Does it make you feel energized or? Yes. And like, this is when everyone's like, number one, you look at his skin and the marks are completely not the same as the marks on John Bonet's body. Werner Spitz is, of all people, is the one who's like, if they did this to a little girl, she would be screaming to the rafters. Everybody in the house would have woken up. Yeah, and as Spitzy's saying this, Sergeant J, you could see the like, electricity like coursing through his veins he's just walking around like fuck like when does it's like the worst high in the world it's like when does this go away when can i close my eyes totally so now we learn that like in 2008 they found some like foreign dna in jean benet's underwear significantly there is a foreign dna profile found in jean benet's underwear due to this many people believe this dna profile one day will match to the killer the DNA evidence, quote, exonerates the parents. And, and not only are they, quote, cleared, but they get a formal apology. Again, it must be nice. Wow. The investigation of Jean Benet Ramsey's murder focused on her parents. But the Boulder District Attorney says no more. New DNA evidence clears the Ramsey family. In a letter, she writes, to the extent that we may have contributed in any way to the public perception that you might have been involved in this crime, I am deeply sorry. And Dr. Henry Lee is like, not so fast, you guys. Like, why don't you come to my lab in Connecticut and I'll show you, like, what we're really dealing with with DNA here. So we all take a field trip to Connecticut. And it lasts, it's like the longest I think I've ever been in Connecticut is this scene. I know. <laughs> Yeah, this part really goes on for forever. And, like, the nuts and bolts of it are because the underwear is the object that, like, gets the parents completely, like, exonerated with an apology from the governor or whatever. They're like, let's bring in some underwear that no one has ever touched. So these are packages that you bought, you purchased from different stores? Yeah. So this has just come out of the package. Nobody touched this package. No. We see Henry Lee swabbing it, and then two weeks later we get the results back and they find DNA on it. And the whole point is that like somebody in some you know factory could have touched it, and that's the DNA that they're picking up. Certainly, if somebody packaged this in Thailand and sent it over here and left their DNA on it, well, they had nothing to do with this crime. They weren't ever even in this country. That's a possibility. That DNA maybe has no forensic value just have some innocent explanation get there. It's not the true piece of physical evidence to link somebody or to exonerate somebody. So then we're like, we're back in the war room and it's basically this like round table of everybody being like, so with all this DNA stuff and all the stuff that we've looked at so far, can we all just kind of agree that this was staged? Right. That like whatever happened, this whole thing with her being found in the basement was staged, right? We all agree about that. Yeah, and they all agree. They like, just like, I, 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 like yay. Just they're like, it was not an intruder. No, worth checking off the intruder theory. Like, this is not what happened. Right. So now we're meeting this police officer, Gretchen Smith. Gretchen. <laughs> oh, does she have some shit to say? The tea scalding with Gretchen. Oh. We like show up to Gretchen's house. We're invited into the backyard. I'm Gretchen Smith. Hi. I remember nice to see you. you. The thing about Gretchen is now Clementi and team are going back to that that CNN interview that John and Patsy gave where 
where Patsy was like, hold on tight to your kids because there's a killer running around Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, the one they did four days after the murder instead of talking to the cops, right. that one, yeah. <laughs> and Gretchen is here to be like, girl, nobody thought there was a killer running around. What did you think about the fear in the community that there's a killer on the loose? Well, the fear from inside the department was not felt because some people felt that they knew who the murderers were. Mm -hmm. However, we wanted to make the community feel comfortable, so we would do the extra patrols mm -hmm. diligently. She's like, we did our patrolling. She like basically does air quotes. She's like, we just did that to appease the community. And the one thing that Gretchen says here is that like, you know how we know there wasn't a fucking child killer running around? There was no cases like this before Jean Bonnet, and there were no cases like it after. Like this was all a lie. Mm -hmm. And then as she's saying it, it's kind of hitting me how shitty this is. And then she says it outright. She goes, this case destroyed morale for this force completely. She was just like, you know, the police should work with the DA's office. Like everyone wants justice right like they should be working together and Gretchen God bless her straight up says they didn't want to solve it the parents of the child they had money the district attorney's office and some of administration did not want to hear that an affluent member of the community was guilty of a crime like this they didn't want to hear that I don't think they wanted to solve this crime and if they had to go down a different path that might not have been the truth, I think they were willing to do that. And I'm like, Gretchen girl, oh my God, I can't even, scalding, can't even touch that mug, ooh. And the whole point of this section is to, is to point out that like the DA was completely invested in not solving this case. And you know who else is here to co-sign on that? Oh my God. Steve Thomas. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> I wanna go to happy hour with Gretchen and Steve. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> so Steve Thomas was the co-lead detective on the John Benet Ramsey case and we like we get the end of his story first and then we go back but we learn that in the end when the DA refuses to like indict the Ramseys he quits and leaves behind this condemning letter Thomas implied the Ramseys had intimidated the DA's office saying quote attempts to gather evidence were met with refusals and instead it was suggested that we ask for permission from the Ramseys before proceeding this is where we learned that the cops were basically told that the Ramseys have carte blanche to not cooperate at all and and there's nothing we can do about it. And like, just like everything about the the ransom letter and a lot of things about this case were like totally unprecedented. Steve is here to be like, well, that's weird. Yeah. Never heard that before. I mean, if you are working your way up and he, he was a young guy at the time to be a lead detective on this super big case to then quit your job over how it's being handled. That says something. That's why people at these levels quit jobs like this is to make a statement. And I love how when we first meet him, he's like, just so you know, this is uh, the last time I'm going to talk about the case. And at first I'm like, like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, I hate him already. And then he's like, so make the questions good. Yeah. Like, he wants it. He's like, I want to be on the record. There are good people on this case. I'm one of them. I, I'm sick. I want this to be the official record of how much I hated everything that happened. And I'm like, girl, you buried the lead. Oh, my God. Well, and then we jump right in with him. And they were like, what do you think of the note? He's like, well, Patsy wrote it. So what did your investigation reveal about Patsy's involvement? I think she was the author of that ransom note. We know that was her pad. Her fingerprints were on that pad. The Sharpie pen, we located that and ink matched it to the ransom note, which bore handwriting characteristics that some experts said were remarkably similar to Patsy's. This is the 
co-lead investigator on the case, a police officer, saying to us, Patsy Ramsey wrote that note, you guys. And the way Steve is telling the story, he's so over it, but like wants the story to be told. So he's like, yeah, no warrants, no help. All that standard stuff you see in every other documentary when we're kicking the doors down and getting the fingerprints. We did none of that, girl. We did none of it. And then he drops the bomb. The Ramseys were prepped for their police interview. I was, as was the FBI, furious when we learned uh, that they had been provided uh, copies of police reports to prepare for a police interview, uh, just contradictory to the everything. The point of the interview is to get their information from That's them. exactly to right. To find out exactly what happened before they're tainted with other information. That's right, I, I, I don't disagree with you. And then Steve gives us this insane story about how in June of 98, the entire core team of detectives were saying to the DA, we need a grand jury so we can have subpoena power and we can collect evidence. And the DA, Alex Hunter, in front of the FBI and the lead detectives on the case says, uh, I hear what you're saying, girl. I need to like circle the wagons and get with my people because this is a political decision. And the next day, the FBI drops out. They're like, you know what? We can't do this anymore. And that was when Steve decided he had to quit the case. And I was like, but like, you're the only one fighting for actual justice for John Bonet. Right. We need you. Yeah. Who else is going to get to the bottom of this? I know. Well, us. I mean, clearly. But <laughs> I, I don't think it was an easy decision for anybody. I know. So we learned that eventually a grand jury was impaneled. And so my understanding of grand juries is that like the lawyers on both sides get to present to them as though it's court and they get to hear all of the evidence and they're the ones I guess who make the recommendation whether or not to indict people yeah they hear from like what they would consider like kind of key witnesses to see if they should move forward I believe Rabia correct me I'd be honored that's why they were asking Kim the dispatcher earlier like you really weren't called for the grand jury because they thought that maybe she would have something to offer at the time the whole thing about the grand jury too is that like they are sworn to secrecy for life so the chain of, of command is that the grand jury hears the testimony they say yes you should indict these people or no you shouldn't and then the DA ultimately decides and no matter what the DA decides the grand jury is never allowed to say anything. Right and the grand jury also says the charges what they should be charged with right. they vote like should they be indicted yes or no and if they should be indicted here's what they should be charged with. Yeah and so they impanel this grand jury they go through all of this rigmarole and at the end of it the grand jury is disbanded and the DA says the Boulder grand jury has completed its work and will not return. No charges have been filed. Yet I must report to you that I and my prosecution task force believe we do not have sufficient evidence to warrant the filing of charges against anyone who has been investigated at this time. So that was in 1999. Yeah. And so in 2016, when Steve Steve Thomas, our, our new best friend, yeah. who's like, this is the last time I'm going to be on the record about this, so make it good. Yeah. He is just like, girl, that is bullshit. Because guess what? 14 years after the fact, in 2015, one of the jurors actually came out and was like, hey, girl, so just want to let you know, we voted and we voted to indict. <gasps> the Boulder Daily Cameras reported earlier this year that a grand jury had voted for an indictment of the little girl's parents, John and Patsy Ramsey. 
Alex Hunter, the district attorney at the time of the grand jury, chose not to prosecute the Ramses. I mean, that was so shocking to me. I have a hundred questions, but like, how is that allowed? Why is it like, then why are, why is a judge there? Right. So now we're back to like today, today meaning like 2016 when they're filming this documentary and Jim Clemente boop, 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 calls Alex Hunter. <laughs> the DA. The DA. And he, it's just like Jim on the phone and it's like, hi, is this Alex Hunter? And I'm like, wait, what? I know. <laughs> Hello, is this Alex Hunter? How you doing? My name is Jim Clemente. I'm a retired FBI agent. I'm actually trying to help bring closure to the JonBenet Ramsey case. Okay, well, the call ended. I don't know if he ended it or... And then the, the call is dropped. <laughs> and, 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 and at first, I have in my notes, like, Alex Hunter hangs up on Jim Clemente right. because Jim just goes to Laura... Well, the call ended. Not sure how that happened. So Laura's like, call back, girl. Call back. And he calls back. And we just hear Jim being like, I know, it's funny. Yeah, my service sucks too. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened either. It could be my bad service. Um, well, I mean, we literally just want to... There's a lot of misdirection. And we want to, you know, we want to just sort of cut through all that. What are the... What's really going on? What really happened when you were at the helm? is everyone who's ever been in a relationship and I mean that like romantically or a working relationship when you're working with a partner in any way and you feel like they could be doing better she does a thing that I've done I'm guilty of all the time but when someone's on the phone she's like drop Dr. Lee's name mention Dr. Lee because he knows Dr. Lee And Clementi's like, what? And so she writes on probably some formal like DNA test results. Yeah. She's like, name drop Dr. Lee. And he's like, um, the difference is, though, I'm working with Dr. Lee. And yeah, he's a great guy and he speaks very highly of you. He says great things about you. Yeah. He just he loves you. To nobody's surprise, the DA is not going to help. Right. So one of my favorite parts of this whole documentary is this right here. So Clementi and Laura sit down with this Lisa the lawyer. I'm not going to say she's out loud and proud, but I'm sure she must be. I love Lisa. Because we cannot say enough that the grand jury recommended that John Ramsey and Patsy Ramsey be indicted and the DA totally suppressed it. We sit down with Lisa the lawyer and we like read verbatim exactly what the grand jury wanted the DA to indict Patsy and John on. And I think this is really important. I'm going to play this in full. So on or between December 25 and December 26, 1996, John Bennett Ramsey did unlawfully, knowingly, recklessly and feloniously permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation which posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Bennett Ramsey. The other count was John Bennett Ramsey did unlawfully, knowingly and feloniously render assistance to a person with intent to hinder, delay and prevent the discovery, detention, apprehension, prosecution, conviction and punishment of such a person, knowing the person being assisted has committed and was suspected of the crime of murder in the first degree and child abuse resulting in death. And so, like, when we get the explanation from Lisa the lawyer to Jim, she's saying, like, they're not really being accused of the murder. They're being accused of allowing the situation of the murder to happen. And so Lisa the lawyer says... Normally, if they do an accessory charge, which here is generally after the fact, it's usually somebody else. My opinion would be that there's a third person. There's a third person involved in this indictment. The only third person that's left is Burke Ramsey. 
And Lisa also says, well, all right, everyone hold your horses because Colorado State says that anyone under 10 can't be charged with murder because honestly, the law on the book says they are too young to form intent if you're under 10. With regard to Burke, he was nine at nine the time of the months, crime. Right. So you have to go at the time of the crime. Right. I don't know how they would prosecute him because of that floor, that minimum age of 10. Let's just say it was, you know, you could say negligent homicide. Even if he was, you know, prosecuted now, you can't even prosecute him for that because he was not yet 10. Burke was nine at the time of the crime, so he can't be charged. He was nine and 11 months, according to Jim Clemente. Yeah. So, But the thing is, in defense of the Ramses and Burke, there's no way that the Ramses didn't know this. I'm just saying that like, the parents are rich and they have good lawyers. They would have known that Burke couldn't be charged. Right. So, so they could have said, like, oh, he did it, but it was an accident, knowing full well that he couldn't be charged. Or if he did do it, they could have just said, yeah, he did it it was an accident like not even making up a story like I feel like the point of view of the do of this documentary is that Burke did it and the parents covered it up and I'm saying that if the if that were true the parents would know that he couldn't be charged anyway right. so they would have come forward and said yeah he did it well I hear 100% what you're saying. I'm just saying as like a devil's advocate kind of thing, just for the sake of the conversation. I don't know if they necessarily knew that when the 911 call was made. I totally agree. Totally And agree. when the ransom letter was written yep. and maybe they learned about that later and then timelines had to be shifted. Oh yeah. And I mean, and that's true too, that like by the time they learned that Burke couldn't have been charged, they were in too deep. Because look, I don't know the rules of who can be charged with what and why and at what hour and at what year they're lying. I don't know yeah. that. I'm not looking that shit up in case. I'm hoping that I never have to know about that. I'm hoping that every time I learn about a, a statute, it's something that has nothing to do with me. That's the goal. Who's looking up statutes? I, I mean, my God. <laughs> All right. So two weeks after the murder, Burke was interviewed by someone from the Department of Social Services. And we've got the video. And guess what? Jim and Laura are going to watch it with us. And, and Jim says at the behest of the family and the family insisted that it could not be a police officer. And it's like, OK, look, I get that. As a parent, I'm like, if the police are giving me the leeway to pick who's going to interview my kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And we spend basically the rest of this episode diving into these yeah. videos and they spend Span years. They span like from the two weeks after the murder of John Benet Ramsey, and then like a couple years later when Burke is like eleven and a half, I believe it is. Right, and of course they pick like the choicest clips that like either make Burke look the weirdest or the guiltiest, you know. And one of the clips that you know that they pull is the psychiatrist says to him like, "What do you think happened?" And he says, "I know what happened." So what do you think happened? I know what happened. <laughs> I mean, when she got killed. How do you think that happened? Um, I think, well, I, I, I asked my dad, where did they find her body? And... All right, hold up. So I know what happened right, when she was killed, right? And he said, I asked my dad, where did they find the body? You know, it's what he's not saying. What you would logically expect at that point is asking what happened to her. I didn't dive too much into that where it's like, yeah, I know something horrible happened. He knows in the sense that like he knows that she's dead. Right. And like it's it's so sad because we don't know what happened. You can look at this two ways. You can either look at the psychiatrist asking this poor kid who just like lost his sister and doesn't know how to act about it. And he's saying these weird things or she's asking the murderer what happened and trying to catch him in a lie. And, you know, like he gives us his theory of what happened. Like he says, I think someone took her very quietly and tiptoed down to the basement. 
basement and then maybe took a knife out and then he says or maybe it was a hammer and then makes the like hitting her on the head motion you see that that's that's a physical demonstration you know it's just at odds that he's acting it out at all anyway i mean most children would not kind of future project this or reenact it in a room and then on top of it all there is no emotion no appropriate emotion at all about this happening to his sister Here's the thing, you know, we've done too many of these documentaries for me to think that there's any one way a person is supposed to react in the face of tragedy, especially, like, let alone a 9 or 10-year-old kid. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of these videos. Yeah, I mean, we are not, like, child behavioral experts. And, exactly. and we are definitely not any kind of behavioral expert. And just, like, almost as a rule on this podcast, we're kind of like, I do weird shit all the time. Like, I, I, like <laughs> I can't really. We just went. I, in the last episode, I shake my head when I agree with people so like lock me up you know what I mean like and so we we go back to, remember the friend Judith Phillips from the last episode she was the photographer yeah she's back like with a vengeance literally almost she's <laughs> like what yeah because she's got this crazy story about being excommunicated by the Ramses. like they stopped talking to her but she also has this story about Burke at one point hit Jean Bonnet in the face with a golf club they were playing in the yard and Apparently, he hit her with a golf club right here. And how did you find out about this? Oh, I think I asked Patsy at the time when I was photographing them what the scar was. She said that the kids were playing and Burke lost his temper and hit her. She asked Patsy what happened, and I guess Patsy was super honest. Which is weird because I don't think we talked about it last episode, but in the first episode of this documentary, Patsy lied about so blatantly bleaching Jean Benet's hair. Totally. And like bleaching it blonde and trying to keep up this this like aura of like we're the perfect family. So for yeah. suddenly to talk to their photographer friend, like who who Patsy thinks is like she's a dummy, she'll go to the mayor for me. Like that <laughs> yeah. she's just gonna like be super honest and be like my son has some behavioral problems or whatever right. like I'm not saying that that's the case but like somehow Patsy's like I'm gonna lie about so clearly bleaching my daughter's hair right at five and a half years old but like I'm gonna be honest with you about that and then also like she tells this story of Burke like being kind of a jerk to her yeah like they like cross paths in the hallway and I walked up to him and he said in this terse voice get away from me don't touch me. And I put up my arms and said, okay, I won't, I won't touch you. And I'm like, I'm sorry, parents, you guys are great, but like kids are jerks sometimes. Right. The <laughs> amount of times like a kid has been a jerk to me. My daughter just refused to say hello to you on FaceTime. I mean, She's I'm not, I'm not Mike. I'm not Mike. I know that. But sometimes kids are just assholes. Right. And like, if I have to read one more stupid, like cute, adorable article on BuzzFeed or some listicle about like, look at how adorable it is that their kid like spilled their cereal all over the floor. Like you can't have it both ways. Right. Like, kids are fucking monsters. Yeah. It's why I don't have them. But also for this woman to be like, he was kind of rude to me in the hallway that one time. So murderer, am I right? <laughs> but then they go even deeper on Burke's quote, like psychological issues. We have to hear about what Jim Clemente calls scatological problems. So like we get five minutes of stories about how Burke was smearing his poop all over the place. Well, and the thing is, I mean, people are just like, he, can you imagine like how weird it must be for the the firstborn to be jealous of the beauty queen and I'm like are you kidding me the boy who like the the beauty queen mother couldn't 
put in pageants and then finally she had a girl who like couldn't fight the bleaching and the hair and like shoved her into the pageant system and I'm sure Burke was kind of ignored totally. that to me if he's acting out about I don't know I again like you said there's no video there's no proof of this but he would like leave poop in JonBenet's bed according to the documentary investigators apparently found poop on her Christmas presents she was murdered the next day I just believe that maybe Burke was a little bit ignored yeah yeah yes also are we ever going to be able to stop talking about poop I feel like every single episode we talk about poop now you know what I'm thrilled about they mentioned OJ in this so we skimmed right fucking by it so thank god so yeah <laughs> So look, we're gonna we're not gonna dive deep into this, but there's another interview that Burke does 18 months after the murder of his sister that leads us to the fact that John Bonet loved pineapple. Pineapple was her favorite dessert. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, we find out that like after the murder, there was an amount of pineapple that they found in John Bonet's small intestine. So saying that like it hadn't been in her small intestine long enough to be digested. So she ate pineapple sort of soon before her death, which is a fucking more thing to say, but it's it's where we are. We do know that JonBenet's reportedly her favorite dessert was pineapple and milk. There's a bowl that looks like it's pineapple with milk sitting on the on the table. The ball of pineapple really quite a few pieces, so something interrupted interrupted did not finish eating. We're told in this section that JonBenet's favorite dessert was pineapples and milk. Is that a thing? Yeah, no, we're going to get into that in, in, okay. in a minute. I I, <laughs> I googled it. Colorado? I mean, where are you at, girl? Let us know. Is that a Colorado <laughs> thing? I don't know what the hell that is, but pineapples and milk. I feel like the acidity and, like, I just feel like that can't, that can't. I mean, I guess it's kind of a pina colada, but no, I don't know. Yeah, excuse you. You blend the pina colada <laughs> and you put the alcohol in it and the alcohol clears all the bad stuff away. So Spitz is like, according to my information, oh. that's a h- horrible impression of him. Oh, <laughs> look who has a Spitz impersonation all of a sudden. <laughs> No, it's like it's horrible. It's just so bad. And it doesn't exist. Moving on. <laughs> so he's he's like, according to my studies, JonBenet ate dinner and then had pineapple after that. So he's trying to say that like she had dinner that was fully digested and the pineapple definitely happened well after dinner. So he's like, all right, they had dinner at Fleet and Priscilla White's house. They were home by like 930. This is all according to the timeline. Yeah. John Ramsey puts JonBenet to bed because she was already asleep in the right. car. And then we get this crime scene video that has like all these images of the bowl of pineapple and milk and then I have in parentheses which is insane (laughs) and then also like a highball of tea and it's like it's like on the same table that the the now infamous flashlight was also on it's like right it's like all together it makes no sense so Dr. Spitz this is the original picture of the pineapple what we know from forensics is that both Burke's and Patsy's fingerprints are on the bowl and Burks are on the teacup. So we somehow we learn that Patsy has said she would never have prepared that bowl of pineapples and milk because the spoon didn't match the bowl. The look on your face. Patsy <laughs> said a lot of things. I know. Patsy girl, like like pick a lie and stay with it. Who is she? Yeah. Jay from cereal. And also like just say, I don't know. I was exhausted. It was Christmas night. Right. I never, I never in my, right. how did, <laughs> never in my life. Cause she's like, I never would have given Burke a spoon that big. It just looked weird in the bowl. I just <laughs> never would have done that. And I'm like, girl, you have two like little kids. You I know. know. I've Look, again, not a mother, but I've seen right. in every on every corner 
future of the internet. Parents just like throw shit at their kids and they're like, good luck to you. So no matter what size the spoon is, are they are they quiet? Have they shut up for 10 minutes? Eat out of the spoon. Please, Patsy. Right. Don't have to be a mother to know that. You just want to you just want some goddamn peace and quiet. It's Christmas night, my God. It's the happiest time of the year. <laughs> it's as though you look directly into my heart and read my soul to our listeners. So the speculation is that Burke made this for himself. That Burke got up in the middle of the night, came downstairs, made himself some pineapple and milk. John Bonet heard the action in the kitchen, and this is very real. Daisy would totally do this. If like Daisy was asleep and it was a special night and she heard action activity down in the kitchen she would totally get up let me tell you as an only child yeah. who grew up in a house of parties i remember i remember laying in bed and hearing the the, the like laughter totally. from downstairs and just being like uh, well i fucking hate this right. i'm going down <laughs> they're laughing i know and i gotta tell you that's a fucking shitty thing to do to your parents daisy does it to us every day we're just trying to hang out with our friends for five minutes so i was cute i mean coming down the yeah. stairs very cute i would also serve them the appetizers serve them totally. the drinks i knew from from the womb i knew what i knew how to be a good yes. host and daisy i will say daisy will walk around and pour the first round of wine for everybody she's six it's amazing i know you're welcome <laughs> i mean i get I, kindred which is also why i'm like wait so you're telling me that burke was asleep throughout the hysterical 911 call like kids hear stuff i'm just saying no he definitely wasn't and so john bonnet hears the activity in the kitchen she gets up she comes down it's just burke apparently burke is like eating his pineapple and milk and the theory is that John Bonet like steals a piece of his pineapple and he gets super mad let's remember according to the documentary he has a history of violence he's nine and he like picks up the flashlight and goes and hits John Bonet so hard that it kills her and in the moment the parents realize what's happening and they decide they immediately that they have to cover it up I think this could have been the tipping point that started the entire rest of the cascade of events that happened on the day she died. Could be. Right, and we're talking about this one because Spitz is like, I have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Right. And he's like, I'm 800 years old. And he's like, sometimes kids, and Laura's like, they want to be cheeky, don't they? She just reaches over with her hands and she eats the pineapple, which it makes sense that there's no DNA there. Am I right, Clementi? And they're like, yes. So can we get past the pineapple for like five seconds? Because I'm just, I, I'm going around in circles here. And like, I know it's important, but no one's making it clear why yes. I should 100% care. And I care. I care. Like, I want the case to be solved but I just and I then they just throw something right at me remember the stun gun yeah girl I've been talking about it for two episodes now keeping you up at night right yeah, yeah I yeah, know yeah. welcome welcome to the staying up at night club I can feel it in my back again thank you very much and remember how they were like well that wouldn't subdue her because right. it made this yes. and they asked him they were like how much do you weigh and he was like 200 pounds shut up and I'm like you look great girl <laughs> It was meant to subdue her, which was never going to happen. And so right. it turns out through like another 20 minutes of testing, it turns out that maybe, 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 maybe the marks on the side or like the lower back of JonBenet could have been made by the the parts of a train track that was in the train track room. They say it earlier, like we call it the rec room. They called it the train room. You've got this train room and pieces of track here in this room. And then there were pieces of train track in the crime scene video that were on the floor in Burke's room as well. And they thought it was maybe the little things that made uh, the tracks like come together. These pins connect the tracks together and you could see that the scaled pictures of the two outside pins of the train track 
matched exactly to the injuries on John Bonet. I thought it was an incredible discovery to find a toy in the house that could have been responsible for these injuries. Uh, this is so horrible. They thought maybe someone poked her with it to see if she was alive, and they thought that maybe a little kid would do that. I don't know. Yeah, and you know what? I gotta say, like, this is where we actually do see some science because, you know, again, we see the stun gun, like, where the marks would be. It doesn't match up at all. We see, uh, like, an actual measurement of where these train track marks would be, and it matches up perfectly. And, like, this makes sense to me. And I'm not saying this is what happened, but I'm saying that, like, parts of this story could be true and parts of the other story could be true. But this train track thing, it makes sense to me. Yeah, because the intruder theory that she was stun gunned to or tasered to be so dude just doesn't work no so now they're trying to find like so okay it wasn't an intruder what in the house could make that kind of mark and then it looks to be that like that sucks right you know the, the episode just sort of ends with like we're back in the room and i feel like dr spitz and dr lee are sort of bickering again and then it's just sort of like clementi just sort of like takes the room and he's like you guys the most likely scenario of john benet ramsey dying is exactly what the grand jury who heard all of the evidence and saw and and heard all of the witnesses and all of that like exactly what they wanted to indict them for and that makes the most sense to me too. I think the most likely probability is that the adults in that family, John and Patsy Ramsey, and this is consistent with what the grand jury wanted to indict right. them for, staged this to look like a monster predator had come in their house and killed their daughter. It's my opinion that the Ramsey family did not want law enforcement to resolve this case, and that's why it remains unsolved. They didn't want law enforcement to resolve this case, and that's why it remains unsolved. The question is just, like, why did law enforcement go along with that? Yeah, that that's the thing where it's, like, ugh, like it's really just all bad because it really ends with, like, well, it wasn't an intruder, right. but, <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> We did the case of John Bonet Ramsey. Uh, girl, I know you've done a lot of side googling. Tell me, I and I know this is the thing. I know that Burke Ramsey sued CBS. Tell me everything. Yeah, Burke Ramsey sued CBS for seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, for like, oh I think it was God. defamation of character. It was just like, bitch, how dare you? Like, whatever the legal term for that is. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I don't know what he got, but there was some undisclosed settlement. Um, you guys, if you want more Jillian and me, if you want some more laughter to fill up your like quarantine days, <laughs> just head on over to Patreon. Obsessed. At the $5 level, you get all the 140 bonus episodes we've made. Uh, girl, right now we're in the middle of Tiger King, Bananas Pants. I mean, oh yeah, I have them on right now. You can't see them because we're in quarantine, <laughs> but I have my banana pants on right now. My bananas pants. Bananas pants. And you guys, you can get our episode by episode, Make Your Murderer, The Jinx, Serial, Lorena, You Know It All, Don't F With Cats, The Bananas Brothers, Lacey Peterson, so many things. So many things. And like, and fun, and fun other tiers and all the, you know, after parties and... and Ad-free episodes, the whole deal. We're working all the time for you. We're giving you all the stuff. We love you so much. And uh, yeah, we love you. Um, girl, where can they find us? They can find us at True Crime Obsessed, no ED on Twitter, at True Crime Obsessed Podcast on Instagram. You are Patrick Hines underscore on Instagram and at Patrick Hines on Twitter. Yes, and you're at Julian with a G on all the things. You guys, I want to tell you that we are now creating playlists per every episode on Spotify. We used to do palate cleansers and now we're doing a Spotify playlist. So follow me, Patrick Hines, on Spotify, or you can just search for True Crime 
become obsessed on Spotify and it'll come up. I gotta tell you, the Dixie Chicks one that we did is really amazing. It's a really fun thing to just sort of like get your palate cleanser on after you hear one of these crazy episodes. Girl, what are we doing next? We are doing Tread. T-R-E-A-D. I only know a little bit about this. I just know this guy goes bananas and like gets in a tank and like tries to take down his whole town. I haven't seen it yet, but many people, people who like are just like, oh wait, you do a true crime podcast? Right. People are just <laughs> texting me and said, have you seen this? Have you seen this? It's about someone, as far as I know, someone who is very disgruntled with the local law enforcement or local government yeah. and then makes, like builds, secretly builds a tank yeah. and then tries to demolish the entire town because they are upset about some stuff. So we're going to learn some things. I don't know how it ends. I know nothing about nothing. So you guys, stay tuned for the trailer for Tread and our like ridiculous and hilarious outtakes. Um, And we love you. We love you. Thanks so much for hanging. I hope you're doing well. Are you going to say it? Stay safe in there. In there, you guys. Stay safe in there. We're making it happen. <laughs> stay safe in there. Hashtag stay safe in there. All right. We love you guys. Bye. We love you. Thank you. Bye. Hello. My name is Marvin Hemar. He had a great reputation in the town. I mean, he was an outdoorsman. I didn't ever meet anybody who disliked him. Barb had a knack for welding, working on engines and motors. He was confident, and I thought he was handsome. And he was larger than life. But I didn't get that feeling that he was so angry. No one realized how distorted it was becoming to him. I am making this tape for the task that I am about to undertake. In Marv's mind, the town's not treating him fairly. It's a kind of a community that in order for you to get ahead, you have to keep the neighbor down. Enough is enough. I'm not gonna take it anymore. Huge monstrosity. It looks like a tank. How do I stop this? God expects me to do something to those who kept me from getting what I deserve. God's will be done. Through me. Just get, just get her to be quiet for five goddamn seconds. Give her, I don't, the biggest spoon she wants. Who cares? I hate I it. Oh, what a creepy sound to have for yep. like a national. It was horrifying. It's only out creepy by the end credits music for Unsolved Mysteries. Like it's the scariest music ever. Are you saying you're not you you don't know the difference between a cobweb or a spider web? I know what the difference is. I'm just not sure because they go back and forth, and so I'm not sure what they're saying. Because it an is. alligator will see you later, and uh -huh. a crocodile will see you. We'll after see you in a while. while. <laughs> not today, girl. Not today. <laughs>